So you find it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you. Now, Billy Graham once said that the Bible is a love letter written to us. It's a love letter written uh, to us. Uh, but I don't know if you uh, have read, that, if you're listening when we were reading the passage before, if the Bible's a love letter, then our passage is a little bit strange this morning, isn't it? Uh, because uh, if I'd have written this to Caroline and put that she was dull of hearing and uh, really that she was like a big baby, uh, I don't think she would take that as a love letter, really. That's not the normal... I haven't written very many in my life, but I'm assuming that that's not the content of what you uh, put in. And it doesn't really sound like it's written to us either. So the author who's writing this letter to the Hebrews, well, he clearly knows the believers. He can comment on their circumstances, what they've done. Um, So if we were to read it as though it's written to us, have have a look at the back of your uh, notice sheets there at Hebrews 13, uh, 23. It says, you know that our brother Timothy has been released and with whom uh, I shall see you if he comes soon. Now, unless that person who's coming soon is Jesus, the author isn't going to come and visit us uh, anytime soon. Actually, he's, he's speaking to a specific group of people. So we can't just take these things as directly to us when we read the Bible. That's been one of the big mistakes down through uh, Christian history. But it's better to think of the Bible as a book written for us. It's a letter from uh, one person to another, if you like, but it's intended that we read in on it. And that means it's not irrelevant. It's actually written with us in mind, but it's not written to us in the same way. Now, we're not to forget the Spirit here. The Spirit applies it to us. So sometimes as we read the Word, we can feel as though it's going straight into our hearts and speaking directly to us. And through the Spirit, it does. But the words themselves are addressed to other people. So this morning's passage wasn't written to us as individuals. Those we go through, it might feel as though It was written to us as individuals. I don't know the state of your heart this morning. But that's important to bear in mind as we look at these difficult verses. If we feel this doesn't include us, if we feel this is totally outside of us, then actually we're not going to listen, are we? Actually it does involve us, but it's not written to us. So this morning, we have to let the Spirit do heart surgery by his word as we read the word. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There's going to be some tough things that we're going to talk about this morning. There's going to be some hard things to hear. But the Spirit will help us if we ask him to. So let's just pray before we we dig into the passage itself and ask God for his help. Father God, we pray that your Spirit would impact us this morning. Father, pray that he would soften our hearts. Father, pray that he would do that surgery with the scalpel of the word on our hearts. Father, that we might love you better, that we might know where we stand with you, and Father, worship you aright. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing that the author has to say about his readers is that they're sluggish babies. Let me read to you again verses 11 to 14. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though some of you by this time ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. 
If this is a love letter, this is an example of tough love, uh, isn't it? It takes guts as an author, as a writer, to write this to people, doesn't it? You're slow and you're immature. Ouch! (laughs) That's got to hurt, hasn't it, as you read these words, as the original readers would have read them. The thing is that he wants to explain more. He's just been talking about Melchizedek uh, in verse 10. He wants to explain more about that, but he's worried. He's worried that they can't take it. Because they have become dull of hearing. They're lazy listeners. Now, the implication of him saying that they've become dull of hearing seems to be they haven't always been. Actually, they, they had an appetite for the word. They had a thirst for it. But they seem to have lost their appetite. They don't want it anymore. It can be really hard, can't it, when you lose your appetite? There are medical conditions and, and all sorts of things that can lead to a loss of appetite. And it's not that the food changes, is it? Actually, it's our attitude to the food changes. So even if you're at a five-star Michelin restaurant, I've never been to a five-star Michelin restaurant, I don't suppose I ever will. Probably wouldn't want to eat the stuff they, they serve there anyway. Um, but it wouldn't matter whether you're eating that or whether you're eating fish and chips. If you've got no appetites, you just can't eat it, can you? You don't appreciate it like you used to do. And that's the case with them and the words here. They've got no appetite for it. They're not just reading the word, hearing it too. Remember, in their culture, lots of the way that they've received the Bible was through preaching. So it seems that they've gone off preaching. Uh, it seems uninteresting. Not that the preacher's changed, he may have done, but they've got no appetite in their hearts for it anymore. They've become dull of hearing. They don't want to hear. And he gives a reason for knowing this. He says in verse 12, Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He's saying, actually, by this point, you should be teachers. That's how I know that you're not into the word. That's how I know you've lost your appetite. You're not teachers yet. And that's fascinating, isn't it? That he would say that that's a sign that they, they're not listening. He knows they've become lazy listeners because they're not able to teach each other. Instead, they need someone to teach them. And he's not talking about advanced stuff. When they're they're being taught, they're not wanting advanced stuff. Not anything complicated, just the basics, please. What he's saying here is that they haven't advanced in their faith. They've become Christians and then they've just kept going, but not growing. They're happy being babies, if you like. That's what he's saying. Happy being spoon-fed the word. Making a virtue, perhaps, of having a simple faith. Using that as an excuse to avoid any harder teaching. Or engaging their brain in teaching. And I've even heard ministers talk like this, of their congregations. Ah, harder stuff, that's for those in university towns. No appetite (laughs) for it in my church. Happy for folk just to have a simple faith. Or another minister said, oh, nobody ever asked me any hard questions, so I don't feel the need to do too much Bible prep. In a few cases, a simple faith is all that is possible, isn't it? But for most of us, it's more than possible, isn't it? It was for them, they were able to advance, but they were just happy being spoon-fed. So the picture painted here, what he's talking about, is a church full of babies that can't teach each other. And that's not how it should be. It wasn't the norm. So on the back of your sheets, you've got Romans 15, verse 14. This was Paul writing to the church in Rome. 
said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That seems to be the norm for the churches, that they're instructing one another, they're teaching one another. But here he's saying, this church, no. They're they're quite happy just being spoon-fed the word rather than teaching one another. And what they need to be taught is the basic principles of the oracles of God, the Bible. Because they're unskilled in the word of righteousness and the way of referring to the Bible. What seems to be off here is they don't feel confident to, to talk about the Bible. They don't seem confident in handling the Bible. They're unable to teach themselves because they have become dull as to how the word works, even. How can they feed themselves, if you like, if they don't know how to prepare the food? So they're left with that, like that man in the, uh, the famous proverb, uh, needing handouts of fish because he doesn't know how to use a net. They say, don't you give a man a fish and he'll feed himself? Teach a man to fish and he'll feed him, him himself and his family for a lifetime. And that's true with the Bible too, isn't it? But they've got themselves to the stage where they're comfy, where they, they're being fed, so they're happy, but they don't want to go on any further to teaching one another. Instead, they just want to be spoon-fed the word. Now, I've done spoon-feeding quite recently with uh, the boys growing up and all the weaning and that. Uh, and it's quite a messy process. I think it's fair to say, you know, you get food everywhere and you get special-sized spoons and all sorts of stuff like that. Could you imagine an adult being spoon-fed who was a healthy adult? It would be bizarre, wouldn't it, if you had, you know, you come round for tea today. Oh, yeah, all right, here you go. I have to cook up your food for you. So I have to do that a little bit. For my kids, not for people who come around my house, just to clarify. But it's, it's a bizarre image, isn't it, of an adult being spoon-fed, of, of being given milk, if you like, on a bottle. But this is the picture he paints of this church. And his intention through the rest of the letter is to wean them, to get them off milk and onto solids. Solid food, he says, is for the mature. And that's what he's going to give them as he looks at Melchizedek later on in the book. He's going to wean them off their easy milk and give them something to chew on. He's going to show them what good teaching looks like, what good exhorting looks like, what good Bible handling looks like. But before we look at that, we need to address this question, don't we, that we started with. Was this written to us, or was this written for us? Well, it was written for us, wasn't it? We are not the ones being addressed in this passage. Does that mean it has nothing to say to us? Well, no. It does have something to say to us. Could it be that some of us this morning are feeling a bit sluggish, spiritually? Could it be that some of us have stopped growing? Could it be that many of us here this morning should be teachers of the word, but we've never progressed that far? However many years you've been a Christian, what have you done with the time that God has given you as a Christian? And some of you will be thinking, oh, but things like teaching, isn't that gifts? Isn't that that God gives gifts? And he does. But the gifts aren't static. So God gives uh, gifts at certain times and takes them away at other times. God can change our gifts. We can develop our gifts as well through our life. So 1 Corinthians 14 verse 12, again on the back of your sheets, you see here that Paul is talking about gifts that God has given But he says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, the spiritual gifts, strive to excel in building up the church. 
He's saying, actually, they're to desire and excel in the gifts that build up the church. So if they can excel, if they can progress <coughs> in gifts, then it gives the idea we, we can be trained, we can learn. But it's still God that's giving the gift, isn't it? And teaching as well isn't just preaching. I'm not saying everybody here should be a preacher. Not everyone is. But all of us should be competent to understand and explain the Bible. To our friends and neighbours as we do it evangelistically. To our families as we uh, talk to them about the Bible. To our children. To one another as we meet together on a uh, Wednesday or Thursday night. As we meet together in the week. As we talk to one another on a Sunday morning. So think about where you are in your spiritual walk. Could you take a Bible study? Could you give a thought at a prayer meeting? Could you teach heroes or miniature heroes? Because all of us are commanded to teach. The difference is the the different context that we do it. So in Colossians 3.16, we are there commanded to. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We are to teach one another. And we saw as well that exhorting involves teaching, didn't we? Uh, So Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. And we said that Hebrews here, as he explains the Bible, the Old Testament to them, that's an example of exhorting. So are we doing that as a church? Are we teaching one another? Am I doing that as an individual? Am I bothered about being helped? Uh, to do that, to help to, to progress and grow? Or am I just comfy where I am? If you want some help, some training in doing any of those things, just ask myself or Mike or, or an older Christian. They are sluggish babies, is what he's saying. The question is, how about you this morning? Where do you fit? So they were sluggish babies, and they're stuck on the basics. That's verses 1 to 3. Let me uh, read them to us again. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instructions about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So this section begins with an exhortation to to press on to maturity. He doesn't want them to stay where they are. He doesn't want them to stay as babies. But they here are stuck on the basics. They don't want to progress. Now he lists off the basics for us. And it's helpful for us to think these things through. I think there are reasons why he's, he's mentioned them. And here are the basics in a nutshell. Here's the basics of the Christian faith. Repentance and faith. That's what he says. Repentance and faith. I said it was basic, uh, didn't I? But uh, there it is. Uh, back in, uh, in verse 1. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. And faith towards God. He's going to go on and explain some other things, but really that's the basis of everything else. Repentance and faith. What do those things mean? Well, he talks here of repentance from dead works. Now I think if I'd have been writing this, I'd have put repentance from sin, or repentance from bad works, or repentance from our iniquities. But instead we get dead works. Works that only lead to death. And as we saw uh, last week and the week before, sometimes, well, all the time, these works can be good or they can be bad. Good works can damn you if you trust in them for your standing before God. 
Even the good things that we do, we have to repent of if we're trusting in them for our righteousness. It doesn't mean that we stop doing them, but we view them differently. Because the Bible says that even our good works are filthy rags. Uh, You'll see there Isaiah 64 verse 6. Uh, This is how the ESV translates it. Uh, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The NIV has filthy rags. But both of them are being very polite. Let's put it that way. When I, when I grew up sort of reading filthy rags, I remember sort of thinking like, you know, you go to a mechanics and they've always got those sort of oily rags on the side that you get your fingers all oily and oh, wouldn't be very nice. But actually it's talking about something far more shocking. Uh, the word there is, is what we use for a sanitary towel, a used sanitary towel. That's what he's saying our good works are like before God. Because we're polluted, even our works are polluted, even the good things that we do uh, in our own strength. So if you think about it, as human beings, we see ourselves standing before God, presenting him with our merit certificates and awards, saying how wonderful we are. But God sees us as stood before him, presenting the contents of our bathroom bin. So we need to repent of our works, both good and bad. Uh, We need to trust just in Jesus alone, which is where he goes to, uh, faith towards God. Now, everybody has faith. Uh, We all implicitly trust things, don't we? Uh, We implicitly trust that our understanding of the world is right. Whether we're a Sikh or a scientist, whether we're an atheist or a pantheist, we all have faith. But here we are to have faith towards God, the God, capital G. The one who is the author, uh, that the author has been describing all the way through, the author of the world. The God of the Old Testament that we've been speaking of. The God who is Father, Son and Spirit. All three have been used in that way in, in Hebrews. And it's not just to believe that he exists, but to trust him. To take him at his word. In Hebrews, the idea of faith is linked with unseenness. But that's not talking about a blind faith. God has revealed himself, but not by sight. Faith, then, is to be in the unseen God. Unseen in the sense that he's invisible, you can't see him. But unseen in the sense that God, uh, we see God ultimately as he dies on the cross. That's what we've been seeing uh, through uh, the book of Hebrews. So it means that there's an unseenness to his glory. That's also something that we grasp by faith. You know, we see a dead man on a cross, but there we actually understand the God of the universe. So we're to trust in that God, repent and believe. And that's the basics of the Christian faith. If you are here exploring this morning, that's what it's all about. And throughout our Christian life, we don't stop doing those things, do we? We keep repenting, we keep believing, and we keep building on that foundation. So that's the the, the basics. But he also mentions some instructions that seem a little bit strange as linked in with the basics of Christianity. Uh, Do you see there, verse 2? And of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, some bits of that we sort of get, don't we? We can see how eternal judgment and those things are, are coming. But what about washings? Would you include that in your outline of, you know, if you're talking to a non-Christian friend, here's the basis of Christianity, this is about washings. Now, the word there can mean baptism, but it's broader than that. It encompasses all sorts of ceremonial washings. Um, So, perhaps he's actually talking to, again, we need to remember these are Jewish believers he's talking to. Perhaps here the idea is about baptism, yes, 
But also, they're to leave behind a lot of their ceremonial washings. Remember, Jesus said that it was the inside that needed to be clean. And I imagine that's quite a big thing for a Jewish community to stop doing ceremonial hand washing or things like that. So it could have been a big deal for them. This would be one of their big um, things that they would have to change in their life. The laying on of hands as well. That was an early practice uh, for all sorts of things. If you read it in the Bible, it can be the receiving of the Spirit, it can be healing, uh, it can be uh, being arrested. They laid their hands on him and he was arrested. Um, It was all sorts of things. And we're not exactly sure what's in mind. But again, it could be linked with baptism. So the idea of people being uh, given the Spirit. Uh, Perhaps that was an early ceremony about receiving the Holy Spirit. And these things don't seem basic today, but both these things were very common practices to the early Jews. They had to work out what they were going to take and what they were going to leave from their former religion. Are they going to carry on with the laying on of hands? Are they going to carry on with the washings? So this was an important deal to them, but probably to us, it just sounds a little bit confusing. Next things, though, are a bit more up our street, aren't they? The resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. They're things to do with the end of the world, aren't they? Jews had different opinions on the end of the world. Uh, The Pharisees believed in heaven and resurrection and angels and all sorts of things. Sadducees didn't believe in heaven or angels or the resurrection. So even within a Jewish community, there'd be disagreements about these things. So he teaches them about the resurrection of the dead. Now, this isn't Jesus' resurrection that it's in mind, but the resurrection at the end of time. The Bible teaches that one day everybody will be bodily resurrected. Our ultimate destination is not heaven, though we will go there if we die before Jesus comes back. But our ultimate destination is a physical existence on a new earth. Now the Greeks were really embarrassed by this idea because they thought that the body was bad. So the idea of getting the body back would be a little bit strange. But the Bible is not ashamed of this idea. And Jesus' resurrection is the evidence and the assurance that we have that this will happen. So some are resurrected to eternal bliss on a new earth, and others to eternal judgment. And that's where he goes, isn't it? Eternal judgment. It's an unpopular doctrine, isn't it? Let's face it. But hell is one of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. It's been there right from the beginning. It's a reminder in this letter of the stakes of what following Jesus or turning back will mean. (coughs) It's not going to be... uh, It's going to be either keep going or it's going to be not keep going. But the choices aren't sort of equal sides. It's going to be keep going or face eternal judgment. That's what he's saying here. So are these things that we've been talking about written to us or for us? Well, they're written for us, aren't they? You might not feel like you're stuck on the basics, but maybe the basics might be a little bit different for for us guys. It wouldn't be the washings and laying on of hands. Not that the contents of the gospel changes, but are you still learning? Are you still growing? Are you still progressing? Or have you become content with where you are spiritually? Sort of on a plateau. I know enough now so I don't need to press on any further. Well, unless you are Jesus this morning... Nope, okay. Um, You've still got some way to go. All of us are still, should be growing, shouldn't we? All of us have some way uh, to keep going, to keep moving. We've still got uh, things to learn. And we need to keep moving. We need to keep growing. 
So Christianity has been talked about like a race, hasn't it? But imagine it like a swim. Uh, you're in a river and you're swimming against the tide going forwards. What do you do to go backwards? You just stop. You don't need to swim backwards. If you just stop, you'll go backwards. Or I don't know much about cycling. I know there are some cycling experts uh, amongst us this morning. But the, my experience of cycling is that it's actually easier to keep going and to keep on your bike if you're going faster. If you're going really, really slow, it's actually really hard to keep your balance on your bike, or it certainly is for me. Actually, if you're moving forward, though, you're less likely to wobble unless you hit something really fast. Uh, but certainly when you're going slower, it's, it's harder to keep your balance. So we need to keep growing. We need to keep going. We need to keep progressing and not just stick where we are. We might not be stuck, you know, uh, let's do this right around, here at the beginning of the line, uh, you know, compared with Jesus over here, but we might be stuck somewhere on the line. Standing still in the Christian life is dangerous. And he warns them next why it's so dangerous in some of the strongest language in the New Testament. They are in danger of hell if they're snubbing the blessings. Snubbing the blessings. Have a look at verses 4 to 8. <coughs> For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The land that has drunk the rain that falls often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burnt. This is probably the most controversial and disputed passage in the whole book of Hebrews. So we need to tread carefully. It's also one of the most emotive passages in the whole book. We all know people who have fallen away, to use the term that it uses there. But a few things to note to help us understand what this is getting at. It moves from us to they in this passage. Moves from us to they. Do you see it talks about those who have, rather than you or we, which is what's used through the rest of the book. This is a warning. They are in danger of drifting away, but he's warning them that there are are a certain group that will not be brought back. He's not saying that it's the people that he's writing to. He's saying that there are a group over here uh, who will not be brought back, but he's not saying that this is his readers. We need to bear that in mind as we, we read that through. We also need to bear in mind here that the description does not explicitly say that they are Christians. Now this is disputed. Could you really say that someone has shared in the Holy Spirit and still not be a Christian? And yet there's an absence of pretty major things, aren't they? Think about what we've just been talking about, faith and repentance. They're not mentioned uh, in our, our passage here, are they, of what these people have done. It doesn't say that they've believed and fallen away. It doesn't say that they have repented and fallen away. It lists off things that they, they have got, but it doesn't mention the basics there, which he's just reminded us of. <coughs> also, we need to bear in mind that the imagery used here harks back to the wilderness generation. So we've been seeing all the way through this section in Hebrews that he's calling us back, isn't he, to the Israelites in the wilderness who didn't make it to the promised rest. 
They've been enlightened. They've been given the truth. That was true for the Israelites in the wilderness. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Interesting word tasted, isn't it there? A lot of disputes. Some, some of the authors say tasted means, you know, it's really inside them. Others say it's all just like a, a nibble. But the imagery is food, isn't it? Tasted the heavenly gift. Well, it reminds us, doesn't it, of the manna in the wilderness. God had provided for his people. That's what they were complaining about in the weeks before. They shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, there's an incident, isn't there, in the wilderness where the spirit of Moses, if you like, or the the spirit that God had given to Moses, the Holy Spirit, is shared amongst the elders. There are 70 uh, elders who share in the spirit, and yet they don't make it into the promised land. Tasted the goodness of the word of God. Well, this is where the word of God began in the wilderness. This is where Moses wrote the first five books. Tasted the powers of the age to come. They'd seen the great miracles that God had wrought. And yet, despite all those privileges in the wilderness generation, they died in the wilderness. All except uh, Joshua and Caleb. Even those who had seemingly shared in the spirit. So we need to bear those things in mind as we, as we read through this. There's also some reasoning here that gives us a bit of a clue to what this is about. Uh, so you see that there uh, in verse 6. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What he's saying here is that this group of people can't be brought back because to their shame they are nailing Jesus up on the cross again. After all they've seen, all they've experienced, they're saying, actually, I'm going to side with the Romans. Jesus does deserve to be up on the cross. So they lift him up to open shame. Same imagery, the idea of being lifted up on the cross. I've tried this Jesus. It's almost as though saying, I've tried this Jesus thing. I've been to church. I've done the studies. I've read my Bible. I've bought the t-shirt, Christianly speaking. And my conclusion after all that is that he deserved to die. Or that he's such an irrelevancy that he's not worth your time. So what it seems that we're dealing with here is somebody who has been in the Christian community, someone who has experienced something of the privileges that we experience as Christians, but now they they definitely turned their back on Jesus. They're a definite apostate, is the word the Bible uh, uses. They they have turned away and now say that Jesus should be crucified, should have been crucified, or that Jesus is a complete irrelevancy. And someone in that frame of mind cannot be brought back to repentance. Now, God can do anything, can't he? God is, is capable of doing anything, as long as it's not logically impossible. But what it's saying here really is that God will not bring such a person back. He will not bring back someone who has completely turned their back on him after having experienced so much. But not all who turn away from the gospel turn this far away, do they? Some people we know just drift away and don't go down the line of the people that it's talking about here. Also, there are people who turn away who don't go that far for that long. So I'd argue from the list of what we've seen is that here we have people who've had tremendous privileges from God, but these people were never truly his. They never really were saved in the first place. All those who are truly his do make it to the end. All those who are his, he grants the gift of perseverance. But this group are not them. 
He's not talking about this group saying, you are this people. He's warning them. And there's a mini parable there at the end that explains this. You see that there in verse 7 and 8. The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burnt. What we have here really is an abridged version of the parable of the sower, isn't it? The focus is less on the seed, and it's more on the rain and the soil. The privileges that we've talked about have flowed down from heaven to the soil. With those privileges, one soil has produced crops, but the other soil has produced thorns. Unlike the parable of the sower, there's, there's no bit in the middle. It doesn't tell you, did they grow for a little while, did they not grow for a little while? Instead, we just get what's the end product. One produces a crop of thorns, one produces a, a crop that's useful. The point is clear. There are only two possibilities in the end. Blessing or cursing. And again, this harkens us back to the wilderness, where the Israelites were presented with a, a choice, weren't they? A blessing or cursing. There's only two ways that they can go in the end. And the privileges themselves don't make a difference. If they've been in church, if they've heard the word, if they've been involved for a little while. The same rain that makes the crops grow, makes the weeds grow as well. So what are we seeing? What's the conclusion from this little section? Well, the parable teaches us that in the end there are only two destinations, blessing or burning. In the end, there are only two harvests, crops or thorns. So in the end, there are only two options. We persevere or we fall away. From the list, we see that the people who are in this situation have been showered with privileges. And it's a bit ambiguous as to whether they're Christians. But to a world looking on, it would would look like it. But they're missing the basics there, aren't they? But isn't that exactly our situation in life when we meet these people? It is ambiguous, isn't it? For a while, we don't know what's happening. It's only at the end that we discover what's going on. And from the reasoning we see, that the reason that they cannot come back is they put Jesus to open shame. He's lavished on them all these privileges and they've still spurned him. It's as though they spat, spat on his face and as though they've nailed him back upon the cross. And how can someone with that attitude continuing turn back to God? But all this does not mean that God will not welcome backsliders back. The difference between a backslider and these people is that backsliders slide back. Apostates don't and won't. All of us know people like this who have done this. And we all have that question, don't we? Are they backsliders just for a little while? Or are they apostates? There are clues in their lives, aren't they? Did they have faith or did they just find it interesting Did they repent or were they just into the the exciting things? Are they closer to coming back now than when they turned away or are they further away? That's a good sign to see what direction are they travelling. But the only way we will ever really know for certain is if they come back. And if they come back, then yes, they were saved. And if not, then it's incredibly, incredibly unlikely I can't say for individuals, and I don't want to give you false hope this morning, because those who are saved persevere. So do pray for folks, do pray for folks who have backslidden. Tell them the gospel, remind them 
of the Lord Jesus, remind them of the necessity of faith and repentance. But the point of the passage this morning isn't so much to make us think about them, as sad and as difficult as those things are. The point of the passage is to make us think about ourselves. People who seem much stronger than we are have shipwrecked their faith down through Christian history. The passage here is to warn us that it doesn't happen to us. Not that Christians can lose their salvation, but really we need to keep going, prove our salvation by perseverance. Not that it's a work that we do, it's a gift that God gives. But the same gospel that saves us causes us to persevere. If we don't persevere, then we never truly have the gospel. So we keep going. We keep pushing on to maturity. Don't be one of those who falls by the wayside. That's what this passage is there to to get us to do, to keep going. So keep going. But finally, the author is sure of better for them, isn't he? He's sure of better for them. And more briefly, verses 9 to 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust uh, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says that he's sure of better for them. How can he be sure? Is it just wishful thinking? Is he sort of trying to make up for the fact that he's called them sluggish babies at the beginning? Well, he's got evidence, hasn't he? Their work. They've not been idle. They've worked for the kingdom. He can see the love that they've shown for God in serving the saints. They've shown evidence of God's work in them by uh, loving other Christians, serving them, ministering to them, helping them. We see it later on in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's not without reason this guy thinks that the people that he's writing to are the real deal. God is not so unjust to overlook all that they've done, and he can see evidence of God in their lives. But there's crucially something else that he says there, isn't there? He says, as they still do, as you still do. It seems as though the fact that he's writing this to them seems that their love has cooled somewhat. But their love is still there. They're still working for the kingdom and loving other Christians. The fact that they are still going actually is evidence that they will keep going. They're still there. But he wants every one of them to be eager for assurance. He wants them to be eager to know that they are saved. And we might be wondering that after this week, how can I know then if it's all about persevering to the end? How can I know? Well, we know by pressing on to maturity. So instead of being sluggish, as he talks about it there in verse 11, that's the same word as dull at the beginning of the passage. So instead of being sluggish, he wants them to imitate the faith and patience of those who inherit the promises. He's going to go on and give them a long list in chapter 11. I'm not sure how we're going to do that for so much stuff in there. But they're people who've endured, who by faith and patience have got there. So he wants them to have faith and patience as they wait for the glorious returning of Jesus, as they wait for their promised heavenly rest. Instead of them being sluggish to hear, he wants them to be eager. He wants them to keep going and keep growing. 
So is this written to us or for us? Well, it's written for us, isn't it? The author doesn't know us. He doesn't know Bethel Church. We can quote this verse at people as though it's evidence that they're saved, but he doesn't know, does he? He's writing to a particular group of Christians. He doesn't know, but I do. I know you guys. You know each other. I'm sure of better things for us. I've seen your love and devotion to the Lord. I've seen the hard work that you guys put in to gospel work. And we can encourage one another with that, can't we? In words of encouragement. All of us struggle sometimes with the idea, are we going to make it? Are we really Christians? But we can encourage one another. We can help one another see evidence of God in each other's lives. But are we encouraging each other? Are we doing that? Pointing out signs of of regeneration in each other's lives. Not to flatter them, but to help them. To help them keep going. There's a a wonderful uh, example of this in Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to close by reading you quite a long quote from Pilgrim's Progress. There's a guy called Hopeful who follows Christian all the way through in Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, just before the end of the first part of the book, Christian and Hopeful are passing through the water to get to the gate of the celestial city on the other side. It's like the, the hymns that we've been singing this morning. And the picture here is persevering right to the end, even with doubts, even with fears, even though many have left them along the way. And Hopeful is here right beside Christian, and he helps him through this very last leg of his journey. So let me finish with this. They then addressed themselves to the water, that's Christian and Hopeful. And entering, Christian began to sink. And crying out to his good friend Hopeful, he said, I'm sinking in deep waters, the billows go over my head, all his waves go over me. Then said the other, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. And then said Christian, oh my friend, the sorrows of death have surrounded me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian. So he could not see before him. Also, uh, to a great degree, he lost his senses. So he could not remember nor orderly talk of any of the sweet refreshments that he had met with during his pilgrimage. But all the words that he spoke continued to show that he had a horror of mind and hearty fears that he should die in the river and never obtain entrance in the gate. Here also, as he stood, he perceived uh, that he had many troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed, both since and before he began his pilgrimage. It was observed that he was troubled with apparitions of goblins and of evil spirits forever on him and would intimate so much by his words. Hopeful, therefore, he had much of a do at keeping his brother's head above the water. Yea, sometimes he would have quite gone down, and then a while after he would rise up again, half dead. Hopeful also would endeavour to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate and the men standing by it to receive us. But Christian would answer, It is you, it is you that they wait for. You have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so have you, he said to Christian. Said, he said to Christian. Our brother, said he, surely if I was right, then he would arise to help me. But for my sins, he has brought me into the snare and he has left me there. Then said Hopeful, my brother, you have quite forgot the text where it says of the wicked, there are no bands in their death, uh, death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but they are sent to try you whether you will call to mind that which up until now you have received of his goodness 
and live upon him in your distress. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in a muse for a while, to whom also hopeful added his voice, be of good cheer, Jesus Christ makes you whole. And with that, Christian broke off with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, uh, though the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Then they both took courage, and the enemy was as still as a stone until after they got over. Christian therefore presently found ground to stand on, and so followed that the rest of the river was not, uh, sorry, was but shallow, and thus they got over. Now upon the bank of the river on the other side they saw two shining men, again, who waited there for them. And when they had come up out of the river, they greeted them, saying, We are ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for those who are the heirs of salvation. Thus they went towards the gate. Now you must note that the city stood up high on a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up that hill with ease, because these two men, with these two men to lead them by the arm, and also because they had left their mortal clothes behind them in the river. For so they went in, but they came out without them. So they went up here with much agility and speed. Though the foundation of the city was found was higher than the clouds, so they went up through the regions of the air, talking sweetly as they went, being comforted because they had safely got over the river. Do you see there how Hopeful keeps his friend's head up, even through the deep waters? Well, let's be like Christian and keep going. And let's be like Hopeful and be helping others keep going. Let's pray now as we close.